0: Hello, I'm Rachel Moore, President and CEO of the Music Center. As Los Angeles' premier performing arts destination, the Music Center presents some of the world's greatest performances and provides the platform for the most innovative and creative artistic minds who set the standard for excellence. On Offstage and Unbound, I have the pleasure of speaking with many of these artistic visionaries, where we delve into their processes, explore what inspires them, and discuss the state of the arts in Los Angeles and the world. Hello, I'm Rachel Moore, President and CEO of the Music Center in Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us for our podcast series, Offstage and Unbound. As a former ballet dancer for American Ballet Theater It is my sincere pleasure to bring our audiences both incredible experiences with dance both on stage and with this podcast in this episode we'll speak with akram khan dancer choreographer and founder of the akram khan company we're excited to be presenting akram's until the lions the akram khan company tells stories through dance that are compelling and relevant with a commitment to artistic integrity and excellence. The company dares to take risks, thinks big, explores the unfamiliar and avoids compromise. Akram's work is recognized as being profoundly moving and his intelligently crafted storytelling is effortlessly intimate and epic. Akram, welcome to Offstage and Unbound and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hi, hi Rachel. How are you?
0: Good, So I thought it would be interesting to start at the beginning uh, when you were a child, and what was it that interested you in dance or were your parents interested in dance or music? How did you insert yourself into that world
1: i it, it, I think um, several things happened. One of the things was uh, uh that I was um, that was very hyperactive, and so my mother was concerned, I was um, a little bit uncontrollable, physically uncontrollable, so she put me into dance because she loved dance, and she thought maybe that would channel me, kind of focus my energy, and it, it did, obviously. But the other reason that I got into dance, I would say, in that stage, uh, as a child, was Michael Jackson. I saw Michael oh, Jackson. Oh, that's awesome. completely fell in love. Uh, I thought, wow, this is what I want to do, this is who I want to be. <laughs>
0: that's great. That's great. Your uh, family was from Bangladesh. Is there a strong dance tradition there?
1: There is, um, particularly uh, folk dance. Mm -hmm.
0: Um,
1: There's a lot of dance that kind of celebrate seasons, weather, uh, fishing, um, hunting. So it's quite uh, primal in many ways. But there is also Rabindra Shungit uh, based on Rabindranath's songs what they would refer to as classical dance. Mm-hmm. But really, I studied a particular style from North India called Katak. So I, I stepped into Kathak, uh, this North Indian classical dance, at the age of, I, I would say, seven, I think.
0: It's really incredible that uh, your mom especially was so supportive of this journey of yours, because not everyone I talked to in the dance world had that support.
1: No, no, I, I was very, very lucky. I mean, she, she's a feminist, a very strong feminist. I've grown up with her... You know, uh, my grandfather was a, a kind of a legendary mathematician. Um, ah. You know, he was two times gold medalist, I think. Uh, oh, my. Something like that, within the whole of Bangladesh. Um, and so his daughter, which is my mother, to dance, um, who loved arts, culture, especially dance and music, he, he kind of forbade it, really, because... Um, It was uh, at that period when she was growing up as a child, uh, it was looked at uh, as something where if the daughter is dancing, it would bring disrepute to the family, to his name.
0: Wow. Uh,
1: Anyway, she went into, because she wasn't allowed to dance, she went into literature. Uh, And then when she moved to London with her husband, my father, uh, um, she felt she wanted to still be involved in culture and art because now she's free from her family, father, in a way. And so, you know, when she saw me kind of moving around around the house and not being able to be still, she thought, you know, I, I'm going to invest in my child. And, and the typical kind of um, perception is uh, or approach is, well, in, it was the exact opposite to Bangladesh. It's like boys don't dance. Girls mm. can dance, but as a hobby. So Interesting. my mum immediately went against that and said, no, do I choose not to believe in that and so she support, she was great she was very open and she supported i mean you know she used to tell me stories every night from greek mythology to indian mythology to hindu mythology to uh, islamic stories to jewish stories uh, she she was very well versed in these in these myths and and so i grew up with that as well so it was she was she was a very she's a very important person but she was definitely very crucial to my early childhood the way I grew up or the way I thought.
0: Well, and that's, um, her strength is extraordinary given sort of Bangladesh's uh, part of the Indian um, sort of view of women. And to be able to break free of that takes an incredibly strong sense of self and confidence. um, Yeah,
1: and I think she she would say she owes it to being in the West in a sense, you know, Mm -hmm. You know, she she moved to London, and so she could set up her own rules. It was suddenly it was a fresh chance for her, and so she didn't want to bring you know she didn't want the old rules to creep back in, and she didn't want the the way it was in Bangladesh to follow her and to control her life. So she was yeah she's she was very strong but also very aware and it was not just her there was a there was a collection of i call them aunties really i mean they're not my da- real aunties yep, but
0: absolutely. women
1: who who were very close to and you know one was the leader of um of of a of a particular political party the other one was a leader of cultural uh, a, a cultural um institute in london um called the bangladesh centre so it, it was you know, she, she had she had friends who were also women uh, and uh, in the same thinking, if you like.
0: Well, it's clear that you learned the lesson of breaking boundaries. <laughs> um, yeah. So what was it? Uh, so you started as a dancer. When did you feel like you had a voice that you wanted to create work as well as dance?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I never separated... When I was younger, I never separated... Um, Performing from creating, um, I thought they were all in. They were part and parcel of the same package, really. Um, you know, you create, you dance what you create. I didn't realize that choreography was something separate, and I think it's because I saw Michael Jackson, and um, as a child, when when I saw Michael Jackson, I was like, oh well, he's dancing his choreography, so um, he's dancing his own work. Um, so, you know. To see choreography as a different skill was, uh, I didn't really realize that until much, much later, until my late teens, really. Um, But I think I I took it, I I made a commitment to choreography um, after I went to university, I would Mm. say. Now, I was choreographing before that, but not seriously. I mean, I was just doing it because I loved doing it. But it was after I went to university. I I, just got, I, I saw a video on my audition day because I was freaked out and <laughs> um, going, I hadn't gotten to any of the universities. It's the only last university, which was De Montfort University in Leicester in England. Um, and I thought, I've got to get in here. And so I remember. Uh, the the lecturer said look we're going to ask some questions about contemporary dance and and your background and and you know your knowledge of contemporary dance or well, some questions around surrounding uh, the history of contemporary dance so i quickly went to the library and looked up you know i asked this um this person who works there uh i, I remember them being very grumpy i said look wh- wh- where is the contemporary dance section and in those days they had vhs
0: oh my uh, god
1: so they just pointed in one direction. And there were hundreds of them. So I thought, okay, I pulled out two. One of the videos, it was just randomly, Right, Pina Bausch.
0: Oh, excellent.
1: Right of Spring and Café Muller. Uh-huh. Uh, both in the same uh, uh, VHS copy. And the other one was um, uh, DV8. Oh, wow. So, um, and then I w- went and watched it on the video uh, player, and I was so shocked, first of all. Uh, I I was so horrified, um, because for various reasons, partly because I had never seen anything like that up till now. Uh And the other reason I was really upset was why hadn't I seen Uh any of this up till now? Why why, why had nobody told me about it in my classical world, Indian classical world? Why did my masters not tell me about it? And so those that really conjured up this kind of uh, rage and also desire. To, that rage was then fueled into desire to 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 know more about it. And that's when I really saw um, choreography as an art form, if
0: uh-huh. you like.
1: Yeah. Um, where the where the where the choreographer is not always the performer.
0: Right. Right. Right.
1: And that was really fascinating
0: for me. Wow. So, when you were 13, you had a huge opportunity to work with Peter Brooks in the Mahabharata when he toured. What was that experience like for you, and how, it has, how did it inform your moving forward?
1: It was really tough, I would say, because I was a child, 13, teenager. Um, it was tough in the sense that it was uh, um, too much fun. Put it that way, you know. I I was just living in a surreal world, really, with some of the great actors of of, of, that Peter had collected around the world and put together in this team, and to do this epic thing was extraordinary. But I was, I think, I was very young uh, to really appreciate the knowledge and skills that were there, that was that I was surrounded by, and um, I think I absorbed some of it especially from peter and definitely mm-hmm. from some of, a lot of the female actresses you know my mother wasn't on tour with me so i was always uh closer to f- uh females than males so i i would hang out i would like uh, there would be my um stepmom or if you like or you know a mum uh, uh, for the time being since i didn't have my mother on tour so I, I became very close to them and i used to listen to them talk about their characters and but particularly Peter, when he, he, he spoke after the rehearsal or during the rehearsal or before we go into a performance or after we, go into, uh, after we finish the performance, those moments were very, I, I remember they're kind of singed in my, in, in my, mm-hmm. in my memory mm-hmm. um, because he always, always um, somehow profoundly moved all of us that were listening to his observations right. and his thoughts. And I think subconsciously it had a huge impact in the way I make work.
0: I'm sure that that's um, true. I, I remember when I was dancing with American Ballet Theater while I was young, I was exposed to all of these great artists who helped me understand what excellence was, how to reach yeah. for excellence. And I'm sure that, you know, being able to see some of the greats work, you got to be exposed to their process, but also sort of developing an aesthetic value system of what constitutes um excellent stage work when you started creating your own works and working with dancers sort of what is your process do you start with music do you start with a story do you start with uh, a dancer who might be a muse how does that work for you
1: i think it could be anything really um it, it's it's never uh um the same thing twice um although there is there is um a kind of format uh within the within every process that I have, but the starting point uh, i'm not sure uh that it's very specific uh, that it's um the same for every project but it's the the format would be that an idea uh what uh-huh. Peter Brook would call a formless hunch if you like a seed uh-huh. Uh-huh. or an image or a color or a smell or something or even if it if that's the even, that, even if that's the narrative the um Broken down, simplistic version of that narrative. Um, is it about love? Is it about anger? Is it about hate? Is it about betrayal? Um, so I would start with that formless hunch, and I would start gathering, if you like, yeah, gathering uh, collaborators that I feel I want to work with, perhaps on this particular project. And then once we collect that, we would spend so we would spend a, about a year um, going back and forth and collecting and collecting and collecting having dialogues constantly, meeting up about, you know, several times a year in person to discuss what we've been collecting in terms of images, uh, uh, poetry, uh, poems, um, scripts, or films. And we would just put it in a database and we would just talk about it and reflect. We would not actually take action yet. Mm -hmm. And then in the second year, we would start... Second period, let's say, not second year, it's not always a whole year, but the second period would start to uh, uh, go into a studio and start to create, um, start to play, let's say. Mm -hmm. And it's that playtime that I love. That's my favorite moment. And the end, closer towards the end, uh, leading up to the premiere is is another part of my, one of my favorite moments. So the playtime is like there's no rules, there's no judgment the more absurd it is the better but we would put everything in that studio everything we've collected over the year with the collaborators we would dump it into the studio whether it's images on the wall or writing on the wall or um costumes or uh, uh props or you know anything um that related to that formless hunch that we had been investing in through dialogue the year before and we would just play in that studio and uh and then we, I would take it some time off, and then would come the actual third part, which would be the creation period, where we would start. I would start to commit uh, to uh, um, creating a narrative, if you like, with my dramaturg Ruth Little. Uh
0: huh. Um,
1: so th- those are the three stages that that is, tends to be uh, a common thread in all my work in terms of process.
0: With the um, with the dancers, are they part of the early collaboration process, or in? In sort of that no third.
1: usually they come in the second stage uh-huh. when we get into the studio mm-hmm. um, uh, occasionally they would depending on the project some of them might come in the beginning uh, when I'm collecting the collaborators um, but they definitely come in the second period because I also I also want them to have a different voice right I don't want them to but they have they, they are. In saying that, they are authors of the show, of of their of their movement language. Of course, I manipulate, I edit, I cut, I um, repeat stuff. But I, you know, I shape stuff. But uh, it really um, comes out of them. So everything we've collected over the year before, um, they would have access to, and we would discuss it. But we would, you know dances, we we discuss in a different way, we think in a different way to a visual artist or to a a dramaturg or to a composer. Um, Our first responsibility, our first instinct is to research through the movement, through the body. Mm -hmm. So the body tells the truth first and foremost. Yes. If it doesn't work there, then Any other idea you have, no matter how clever it is, just remains clever. Right. But it has to be embodied. Okay, so what what I mean is the the first year is information. That's Mm -hmm. what we collect. Right. Once we go into a studio with dancers, it becomes embodied. Yes. So that embodiment becomes knowledge. That information transforms to knowledge. And so it's the knowledge part that I'm interested in with dancers because they really... Uh, they really invest in um, embodying the, 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 in, this, this information and physicalizing it. And then the physicalization of it then becomes president to anything else.
0: Right. Uh, we're obviously very excited um, that we're presenting Until the Lions, and uh, I think it's going to be an extraordinary um, experience for our audiences. And, you know, I uh, I had not understood um, initially where the title came from. And when I heard that the title was from a saying, until the lions have their own historian, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. I thought, yeah. oh, wow, that is really an amazing jumping off place. Um, of
1: Well, that's from Kartika Naya. She wrote, a, that's her title of her book. Ah until the lions and she collect she's a poet and a writer and she's many things actually she's wonderful and she wrote a collection of poems um based on female characters from the Mahabharata and she had she she, she has been a great supporter of my work and so she had she had co-written Dish with me my first uh, full-length contemporary solo in 2011 so she suggests she asked me if I would make something on Amba this female character, right? And I was completely blown away. So when she told me the title of her um, book, I was like, "Oh, I've got to steal this! Can <laughs> I have it? It's absolutely beautiful." Yes. But it also reflects—it reflects so much of what's happening today, yes. and what's been happening for, for our, our civilization, particularly the latter half um, of of you know the 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 ones who are, are the winners. Right. The dominant ones will always write history. What's interesting is, um, did you ever see the film Dunkirk? Yes. So I'm a great fan of this writer, uh, this director, Christopher Nolan. Really, I, I find his work incredible. Um, his thinking incredible, his, his his subject's incredible, the subject that he tackles. Uh, but what's really interesting, though, is uh, with Dunkirk, it's um, it, it's whitewashed, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, in history so and I'm not saying that's anything to do with Christopher Nolan but what's interesting also is female characters in mythology are always the baddie if you like yes tend to be the baddie yes or they are hidden in the story even if they play a crucial role especially I'm referring to my experience of my per- personal experience of working with the Mahabharat, the, mm-hmm. the, the story, that the male heroes tend to be the dominant ones and the heroes and the justif- you know, the ones that have justice and the female ones not. Even if the female characters are right, right, they are looked at negatively and wrong to go against, to stand up against male characters, as in Amba's character, who is the lead character of Until the Lions, standing up against my character, which is Bhishma, Who was, in a way, the authority, and so then I started um, doing a lot of research with uh, some friends of mine, who are specialists of mythology. And male characters are celebrated because it's written from a male perspective. Right. This has to change.
0: Yes, and women are generally uh, punished for having truth to power.
1: Yes. I mean, even look at Eve, Adam and Eve. Eve is the is the problem. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, that's just one example. I can go into hundreds of examples where the female... And, and in a sense, Amba is the one that is uh, uh, the problem. She is the one that has done wrong, even though it's so clear that she is not wrong. She is fighting for justice, for something Bhishma, my character, um, who did something very wrong and um, against her and ruined her life. And she said, I want justice. But society says, how dare you speak against... Bhishma, who's so revered, so, you know, such a terrifying, uh, powerful, respected, revered warrior, how dare you, how dare you go against the alpha male? So it was interesting because when my daughter was born um, four years ago, um, even though I've had my mother very close to me, and I've been very close to my mother, it really hit me when I started to think, what world is my daughter going to see? mm how is she going to see the world through her eyes? And, you know, Ruth Little, who's um, uh, uh, who's very close to me, my drama talk, um, you know, we were discussing, though so in a sense, with Kartika, this wonderful writer, we, we felt, yeah, we, we need to talk about these female characters and have a very different perspective of it, have a perspective where she is right, people see her as right, and unjust was done to her. And God, you know, well, I don't have to say too much about um, Unjust and imbalance between women and <laughs> men right now in in society in our civilization and that's crossing all over the world. It's not just in in,
0: in the U.S. with Harvey Weinstein. Yes.
1: It's all in all areas all over the world.
0: Well, you so know it's, it's epidemic. It's it is, but you know what's also interesting is she's can be. I think what's also scary for some is not just that a woman is demanding justice. She's wreaking vengeance, which is a very scary thing because a a woman seeking vengeance, um, that's a a very powerful and scary individual.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's very funny because... Simultaneously, when I was creating Until the Lions, simultaneously I was preparing psychologically, or let's say not in the studio, but definitely uh, thinking about in, in, in my bones and my body uh, about Giselle, because I was making uh-huh. Giselle, yes. I was preparing Giselle in my head for the next year. After Until the Lions was made, I would go straight into making Giselle for English National Ballet.
0: Which was great. And What's
1: interesting with Amber's character and Giselle's character, if I could. If you permit me to say it, in yes. a very primitive way, that they both fell in love, they both were betrayed, and then after betrayal, they went both in different directions. Yes. Giselle went towards forgiveness, and Amber went towards absolute revenge.
0: Absolutely. So I loved your Giselle. Um, partially, oh, you saw it. Oh yeah, I saw it. I saw it in London last year. It was incredible ah. with ENB. and what yeah. what I loved is, um, I've always struggled with Giselle because I felt like she was a doormat, and yeah. uh, you made her significantly less doormatty <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um because you know, it's like, oh, she should just be accepting and and um she didn't have strength um, and you know it's it's a uh, It's a much more relevant story um, when you don't have the docile, silent woman.
1: You know this romantic um, aesthetic? I mean, of course you know. This romantic approach, it also exists in uh, Indian classical dance. So the, the woman, the female character, is somehow perceived through the male eyes. Yes. So they have to be sweet and cute and seductive and ever so serving right and so i i uh, there's a wonderful writer uh, and critique called john berger who passed away unfortunately not so long ago and he he had a huge impact on on my thinking um he He wrote a very
0: powerful book uh,
1: yes yes you've read it yes yeah when i when i read that i started to then make connections to how female characters are portrayed in indian classical dance and then i i was talking a lot with Alina Kojlokoho uh, and Tamara and Sylvie about the romantic uh, period um, and how it impacted uh, female characters and how they play that role. And I just said, you know, this Giselle, it has to be a woman that I know. If I don't know this woman, I won't believe it on stage. Right. It has to relate to me. And the only woman I know really well, the two women or three women, um, are my mother, who is... You know, very, um, very contained, very graceful, but fireball inside. My wife, Yuko, who is similar, <laughs> interestingly <laughs> enough, and my dramaturg, Ruth Little, extremely graceful on the surface, but a bit like a volcano. So you know, rumbling inside. There's so much going on inside, movement going inside, but the outside surface is not is is, is not tampered with. It's almost like asleep. So. I I felt well. No, I I want to I want to explore this and and kind of have this volcano coming out of uh, of of Giselle, um, because that's the woman I would recognise. And so it was really important for me. You know, Tamara and I had long long discussions about uh, how I would like to play, how I'd like Giselle to be portrayed as, because the natural tendency in ballet and Indian classical dance is to revert back to this. Male gaze way of looking at women. Yes, uh, um, when it was created at that time, you know.
0: And uh, and I actually think what was so exciting about your Giselle was that it showed a way forward for classical ballet to be to really be relevant in the twenty first century, and not be simply a museum piece showing old norms. Um, I, I, it was a really uh, wonderful experience for me, for somebody who's been in the ballet world for a long time, to see how can ballet, which has been so steeped in this notion of women as either um, the evil sex person or the virginal dead person, in this case, (laughs) and being silent and obedient and not um, uh, having authorship of their own actions. Um, Yeah. So that was really exciting and it's also you know what i love about until the lions is this notion of a different voice giving um visibility to the unsung heroes in myth making and myth telling and you know i'm really excited that a woman gets a major voice in in this telling i've got to say yeah
1: i i thank you i I think we we do have to rewrite myths Mm-hmm. Or we have to remake myths. I think the problem that we're facing right now with these um, kind of shock doctrines, doctrines happening, these shock treatments from the governments around the politicians around the world, is we are a little bit compassless. We've lost our compass, a sense of we've lost our sense of myths, and the old myths that we had doesn't work anymore. Yep. It was it, it doesn't relate to us anymore. And the new myths, but the, prob- the other problem is the new myths haven't been born yet. Yes. We're still trying to understand it. We haven't, ju- we haven't found the balance yet. We have to find the balance, but we haven't found it yet. And We haven't found the new myths um, because technology is shifting our civilization, transforming our civilization so fast that we can't keep up creating the myth. By the time you've created the myth, it doesn't relate anymore because we've, we've, we've evolved, right. technologically at least which has a huge impact on how we see things in life and, and how we be in life. And so we're in, a, in a, as, as as one writer would call it, a myth gap, if you like, hmm. um, where we're stuck, <laughs> we're void of myths. And so the myths that are being fed to us are all the wrong ones <laughs> to create xenophobia, if you like, and uh, uh, xenophobic tendencies. And they're all symptoms, unfortunately, of of i never thought that i would ever i thought i would always read it or i would see dunkirk i thought Mm -hmm. i would see films i would uh see portrayals of war but they're all symptoms of uh, big war you know and it's it's frightening really um but definitely i feel we have to we have to uh, we have to shift somewhere and we have to we definitely have to find new myths that has more equality that has has uh, within sexes gender um uh, rich and the poor we 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 have to find a new system but in what little I know that that would be my instinct and so in any way I can in my own work i I want to constantly uh, uh, push those important uh, messages through through the work and that 's why until the lines and Giselles are somehow connected to me in that way. Partly because through the birth of my daughter, that gave birth to me looking in a certain way.
0: Well, we're, um, as I said, very excited. We don't usually do performances in the round. Because we are going to be in Culver Studios in Culver City, it's going to be a wonderful experiment for us, actually, to be in this new space. Uh, When this work is performed, is it generally in the round? Or have you done it? Um,
1: Sometimes. I mean, uh,
0: there's not enough
1: round spaces for us to go to, to do, you know, a long tour. So we ha- have two versions, um, a, a proscenium version and then a round version. But the round version is very sacred, really. Um, it's very sacred because it's, it's, it's almost returning back to the way we used to be. Our ancestors' ancestors, ancestors used to be around a cave, Hmm. Or around a fire. Yes. Where we used to share stories. You know, we used to be in a circle. And also, circle is the feminine for me.
0: Hmm.
1: Linear is the masculine. It's interesting because, uh, uh, l- l- you know, in history, if, you, if, if, if I think about it, uh, you know, uh, j- Japan is fa- uh, called fatherland and so is Germany, was known as fatherland. Uh-huh. And in Asia, other countries were called, countries were called, thought of as motherland. So there's something circular about it, but it's interesting about German uh, uh, um, aesthetic that there's that linearity and linear is man-made and circular is, is nature-made. And so this returning back to nature, if you like, returning uh-huh. back to the circle. No, no, I'm really, I'm I'm, I'm ecstatic, uh, thanks to your whole team to invite us to L.A. again, because I have so much childhood memories of L.A. and... and uh, uh, yeah, it's just really exciting to bring this work here. Thank you.
0: Um, you've been talking a little bit publicly about slowing down and not performing as often. Sort of, what yeah, has led you to that? Solo. Well, I'm
1: making my last solo. Well, I'm making my last full-length solo called Xenos, uh-huh. um, which premieres next year. Uh, and I say last. I have to be careful. I'm saying last full-length solo a contemporary solo anyway, full-length solos like Dish or Xenos, which is premiering in February in Athens. But I love performing. I just don't love the bloody training. <laughs> uh, no, it's just too much. And it's just, I have children. Uh, I miss them. Um, or I would rather be in a studio creating and investing in dancers who are more able. I mean, for me, I... I, I um. I'm filled with doubt when I'm on stage, Um, but that doubt and fear drives me, Uh Uh, so it has an opposite effect, but uh, even before I enter the stage particularly, I'm I'm very fearful of things that might happen, injury or, I don't know, and and that's not a nice place to be where you're constantly second-guessing before you, actually before I get on stage. Once I'm on stage, I forget about it, but I don't like being in that state for so long, and the training that i that i do as you know you're, you're a professional dancer that as you get older you have to spend more time doing um physical gym work and training to protect your body in order for you to prevent injury right and that bit is the monotonous tiring bit that i feel like well yeah and but i i would like to do smaller roles cameo roles um just because i like being on stage and you know um I, maybe galas or small, small pieces. I I'm not. I, I want to make epic pieces with um, dancers who are still able to be to do a full-length piece. You know, uh, for me, it's a it's a different. Um, I'm just in a different stage, I think, in my head and my body. My body speaks back, shouts back to me, and says, "No, nope, you can't do that. Don't, don't even try." <laughs> you know, because uh, I see these hip-hop dancers all the time on YouTube, and I'm just like, "Oh, I would love to do that." And I so I go to try, and my body just says. Just it just doesn't happen. It just doesn't even try to do it because the body's wise and saying, you know, you don't have that kind of um, spring in your body if you like.
0: Right. So right. Um,
1: that makes me sad. I think. Um, and so then I'm like, well, why am I fighting that sadness? Um, and I think I'm. Uh, and also the other thing is, I've always I've always been limited with my time, as a as a as a, me particularly as a choreographer because i invest so much because i am a performer right. so i invest so much in the performing that I, I i have to say no to a lot of projects but when when i stop performing full length works suddenly it opens up time because i would be on stage all the time touring and right. you know what it's like when you're yes, touring absolutely. you're heavily submerged in that lifestyle and when are you going to get to create? So um, I think it, it one door closing really hopefully allows another door to open.
0: Oh, I think it will. And, you know, it's it, uh, about two weeks ago, I got to see Twyla Tharp, and she was performing. She was dancing on stage. Wow. And at this age of 74, you know, she still is a performer, and she still wow. found an outlet. So it may not be in the same form, but there are always ways of, Expressing that, uh, regardless of what stage of life you're in, I think, uh, yeah, r- really incredible. Well, um, thank you so much for this. I uh, we are really excited. Can't wait to see you. And um, thank uh, you. This is going to be an extraordinary us. gift to Los Angeles. Great. Thank you so much.
1: Gonna... Thank you. All right.
0: Thank you for listening to the Music Centers podcast series. Offstage and Unbound. For more information about our dance series, Gloria Kaufman Presents Dance at the Music Center, please visit our website at musiccenter.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to our podcast series on iTunes. Until the next time, I'm Rachel Moore.